Hey guys, it's Ellie, and welcome to Minute Mysteries. You're in the right place. So yeah, I, I did miss last week's episode, and I apologize for that. I don't usually miss episodes, but you know what? Here we are, and we're going to keep on going. So anyways, if you've never been here before, welcome to the podcast. <laughs> I hope you stick around, and I hope you have a wonderful time. So basically what happens on this podcast is that I have a book called Minute Mysteries by H.A. Ripley. It's actually linked in the show notes, I believe. And I just read Minute Mystery puzzles from it. So basically Minute Mystery puzzles are logic puzzles where you use your deductive skills to figure out a hole in a story or, you know, some other plot hole. Or, you know, just kind of figuring figuring out a puzzle, you know? It's, <laughs> it's never the same twice. But anyways, uh, so yeah, I just read three of them. And after I read each one, I try my hardest to solve them. And once I either have no more ideas and I, you know, I'm run dry, or I have come up with what I think is a solution, then we read the solution together and we see how hard I failed. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so anyways, two weeks ago, which was my last episode, I did okay. I think I think I got one out of three, which I mean, in all honesty, not too bad. <laughs> Considering how hard these are, that's pretty good. So anyways, with no more awful, let's jump right in. Tragedy at the convention. The convention was in an uproar. The dries were making a determined stand and showing some unexpected last-minute strength. The wets were shouting, clamoring, and stamping. The chairman was vainly trying to restore order amid a scene of wild confusion. As the excitement reached its pitch, Herlinson, a powerful leader of the wets, told a companion seated next to him that he felt a heart attack coming on and was going to the hotel. An hour later, the convention was stunned to learn that he had committed suicide in his room. Professor Fortney, a guest at the convention, went immediately to the hotel. In Herlinson's room, he found the police, the doctor, and Pullert, an influential delegate, who had discovered him. The last time I saw Herlinson was the party last night, and he seemed in excellent spirits, said Pullert. I rose late this morning, my room's down at the other end of the corridor, and I was just leaving for the convention hall when I heard a shot. I dashed directly here, but it was too late. He must have died immediately. He did, said the doctor. He apparently stood in front of the mirror, took aim, and blew out his brains. There are powder burns all around the wound. Learning that none of the maids or any of the other guests were on the floor at the time, Fordney advised the police to hold Pullert on suspicion of murder. Okay, so we have a fake suicide. Those are always interesting. Uh, so, first of all, convention? What? <laughs> I have no idea what kind of convention this is. I'm not sure if it's political or if it's like an anime convention. I highly doubt it's an anime convention. Oh my goodness, that'd be kind of funny though. But it's talking about like wets and dries and like how they're, I don't know, against each other. <laughs> Maybe it is political. Maybe it's, you know, I think it actually might be because it mentions a delegate. So yeah, we're going to go with that. We're going to go with the fact that it's a political convention. Okay. This is not an anime convention. This is not Comic-Con. Okay. <laughs> That's just what popped into my mind immediately, okay? <laughs> oh my goodness. So anyways, so the story is that, first of all, the convention was in an uproar, so, um, like, there was, you know, chaos, apparently, political chaos, I assume, and, um, you know, there was shouting, clamoring, stamping, the chairman couldn't restore order, and it was wildly confusing, apparently. And Herlinson, while the chaos was at its peak, um, who was a powerful leader of the wets, by the way, uh, which is probably, I don't know, a political party, <laughs> uh, told someone seated next to him that he felt a heart attack and he was going to go to the hotel. Which, first of all, if I was feeling a heart attack going on, I would not go to the hotel, I would go to the hospital. But anyways, here we are. 
Uh, let's see. So an hour later, actually, the convention learned that Herlinson had supposedly committed suicide in his room because that's what all the evidence pointed to. Um, so Fordney was obviously at the convention because he's always in the center of the action. And he went up to Herlinson's room. He saw the police, the doctor, and Pollard, who was an influential delegate, actually. So according to Pollard, who was the person eventually arrested on suspicion of murder, he saw Herlinson at the party last night and that he was doing great. He was, like, you know, in good spirits. And then he arose in the morning and he was leaving for the convention hall when he heard a shot. And then he went directly to the room, but he was too late. And then according to the doctor, um, Herlinson apparently stood in front of the mirror, took aim, and then, you know, shot himself. And he knows that because there are powder burns all over the wound. And if you don't know, powder burns only happen when a gunshot is, like, really close to the gun. Like, it's basically point blank. That's how we know that it's point blank, because there are powder burns. Anyways. And then Fordney arrests Pollard, and that's the end of the story. So, why? <laughs> how do we know that Pollard is suspicious? So I have no reason to disbelieve the story that Herlinson was feeling uh, heart attack symptoms and went to the hotel. You know, that's, I mean... Herlinson would have no reason to lie unless he was being blackmailed. But anyways, I don't think that's happening. So uh, let's see. I think we mostly need to focus on Pollard's story that like when we actually talk to Pollard. And so I'm simply confused about the timeline because uh, like the story starts and it says the convention is in chaos. There's craziness. And then then Herlinson goes upstairs and an hour later, they learn that he's dead. And then according to Pollard, he saw Herlinson at the party the night before and he was you know doing fine and then the next morning he heard a shot but he was too late to stop him and professor vordney says that he was that he went immediately to the hotel because he was a guest at the convention so there's no reason that he would have gotten there the next day so why is pollard saying that it was the night before like what (laughs) is that my mistake or is that pollard being suspicious i don't know i often confuse the two Yeah, I don't know. That's really confusing. (laughs) Because it literally says Herlinson went upstairs while the convention was in chaos, and then an hour later, they heard that he was dead, and then it says, quote, Professor Fordney, a guest at the convention, went immediately to the hotel. And then Pollard's over here saying, oh yeah, last night I saw him at the party, and that was great, and then this morning, I got up really late, and then went over, and I heard the shot. Okay, actually, (laughs) well, that actually might make a little bit of sense, because the convention wasn't necessarily one night, so he could have seen him the night before. And then the convention could have been in chaos early in the morning, maybe? I mean, I don't know why they'd have a convention in chaos early in the morning, but who knows. Uh, And then he goes up, and then an hour later he shoots himself. And that's possible because Pollard says that he got up really late. And so all that chaos stuff and all that stuff about Herlinson gumming upstairs could have happened while Pollard was still asleep. Which is, I mean, weird. Why is a delegate asleep? That's really confusing. Um, But yeah, that's actually a possibility. Wait a second, why Why would a delegate be sleeping in so much? Especially if he's a quote-unquote influential delegate. Why, he, why is he sleeping in so much, right? You'd think that he'd be in the action. You'd think that he'd be influencing, <laughs> you know? Hmm. Actually, yeah, I think that's I think that's going to be my solution. I think that Pollard should have been in the convention center uh, when everyone else is there. Although it's probably not at a convention center, but you know what I mean. Like, the place where the convention is held. <laughs> the political convention. <laughs> Let's read the solution. Fordney suspected Pollard because of his own statements that he did not know Herlinson had returned to the hotel. Yet, when he heard a shot, he ran directly to Herlinson's room. As his own room was down the corridor, he could not have known from what room the shot came, and he had no reason to assume it came from Herlinson's room. That is a fair point. 
you know, I'll, I'll, I will take the L. I won't give myself even a half point because, like, yes, it had to do with where he was, uh, but it didn't have, like, it doesn't relate close enough, you know? So yeah, that was very interesting. It makes sense. Like, why would he know which room it came from specifically? Like, hallways in hotels are big and there are lots of rooms, you know? And gunshots are really loud. <laughs> but anyways, let's move on to the second puzzle. A murderer's mistake. Look, Professor, that's how the murderer got in, all right? said Tracy. As Forty walked over to the ladder, standing two feet from the back of the house, he knelt down and carefully studied the heavy footprints around it. Whose room is that? he inquired, pointing to a second-story window against which the top of the thirty-foot ladder rested. That's Uncle's study, replied Tracy. Going into the house, Forty first discovered Withers, who had discovered the body of Lane, Tracy's uncle. I was reading in my room, he said. About two o'clock I heard a noise, so I armed myself and crept out into the hall. Then I heard it again, apparently in the study, so I stole down the corridor, opened the door, and rushed in. I turned on the lights, ran over to the open window, looked out, and saw a man scurry down the ladder, jump off, and run. I fired twice, but evidently missed him, he concluded. Were you home all evening, Mr. Tracy? No, I had just put up the car when I heard the shots and saw a figure dash around the house. I'll take a look at your car later, Tracy. Withers, show me exactly how you found Lane before you lifted him to the divan. As Withers righted an overturned chair, fitted its legs carefully to four impressions in the rug at the right of a smoking stand, sat down and slumped over to the left, Forney said, That's enough. Which one of you killed him? Why did Forney make this startling accusation? That is a delightful question. <laughs> let's answer that, shall we? <laughs> Uh, so, let's see. There are two suspicious people here, obviously, Mr. Tracy and Withers, who had discovered the body of Tracy's uncle. So, I have one question. According to Withers, who was the one to discover the body, he rushed into the study, turned on the lights, ran over to the open window, and then saw the guy run down the ladder and get away, you know? My only question is, actually, I have two concerning this scene. First of all, why were the lights off if the uncle was supposedly in the study, studying, as one does in a study? Uh, so, first of all, why were the lights off? Second of all, why was the chair that he was sitting in overturned? Like, if he died in that chair, and Withers found him slumped over in his chair, as we learned later in the story, then who knocked over the chair? And where was the body? <laughs> it, n it never mentions where the body is. I mean, we can assume it's in the study, because that just makes sense. Like, he got shot in the study, and then the shooter supposedly ran away. But, like, where is the body? It doesn't mention it. So, yeah, anyways, those are basically the confusions that I have. Like, why is the chair tipped over, and where's the body? Um, and also, why were the lights off? Another thing. This isn't really related to the solution, I just figured I'd mention it. They use a 30-foot ladder to get to a second-story window. And... At least in American homes, I think a story is usually 10 feet tall. If I'm wrong, then whatever, it doesn't really matter. <laughs> but, you know, regardless, even if it's a pretty tall house, that's still, you know, a bit of extra ladder than just enough to get to the window. Anyways, it, like I said, it didn't relate to the solution, but hey, he just had a little bit of extra ladder, you know? So yeah, anyways, I think those are going to be basically my solution. It's either the light or the chair. <laughs> uh... I know it's a bit cheating to have several possible solutions, but hey, I don't care. It's my show, so... <laughs> Anyways, let's read the solution and find out if I was right in any way. These murderers, like many others, betrayed themselves by simple oversight. 
One look at the ladder and Fordney knew no man could have climbed up or down it. The 30-foot ladder was placed two feet from the house. Any person ascending or descending the ladder in such a position would have fallen backwards before reaching the top or bottom. Oh my goodness, okay. <laughs> Whew. Yeah, wow, okay, that makes a lot more sense. If I was there in person, you know, at the scene of the crime, I probably could have recognized, like, dude, who's gonna climb that ladder? But, like, reading it in a book, that is a really clever solution that you wouldn't really think of. So, yeah, I applaud this book. It's very clever, very good. <laughs> My solutions were obviously decent, but they could have been explained away. Like, the murderer could have, like, turned off the lights before he killed him. I don't know about the chair, but you get my point. Like, they were not as solid as who would climb a ladder that was at such a steep angle, <laughs> you know? But yeah. So, that was very good. Let's move on to the very last puzzle of the day. Babe comes through. Strike two, shouted umpire Starlin. Kill the umpire, you big bum, thief! Professor Fordney turned in his place directly behind the plate to look at the excited man in the next box, waving an empty pop bottle. He smiled. Couldn't blame a chap for getting excited. Starlin did seem to be calling them wrong today. That last one was wide. What a ball game. Six to three in favor of Philadelphia. Last half of the ninth, three on, two out. And three and two on the mighty babe. The crowd was on its feet, yelling and stamping. The excited pitcher delivered the next throw quickly. Just as Babe connected with it for a home run, a bottle hurtled through the air with terrific force and caught Starlin on the back of the head. He went down like a shot. Pandemonium broke loose. Women screamed and a panic was threatened. That's him! That's him! shouted several people as a policeman ran down the ramp and grabbed the man who had attracted Fordney's attention. Trying to get away, are you? bellowed the cop. I didn't do it! Let go of me! he cried as the officer dragged him to the office. Fordney followed. May I ask a few questions? He inquired. Let's see your scorecard, young man. Hmm, why didn't you record that last hit? Everything else is here. Oh, why, I was running at the time. I had an engagement. I see, said Fordney. Officer, you have the wrong man. He didn't do it. How did Fordney know? So basically, if you're not American and you don't understand what baseball is, you don't need to understand what baseball is. All you need to know is that... A ref was making really bad calls, and then someone hit him in the back of the head with a bottle, and he's dead now. Or at least he's, you know, knocked out. <laughs> Maybe he's not dead, but hey. All they say about it is that he, quote, went down like a shot. So he's probably just passed out, especially considering that it's just a bottle. But still, you know, who chucks a bottle at a ref's head, right? So yeah, anyways, um, the prime suspect was obviously the person in the stand that was screaming at the umpire before, who was the ref, obviously. And he was even holding an empty pop bottle. And that's why he was, you know, suspicious. Because he was screaming and he had a bottle in his hand before. And then, you know, when <laughs> when the umpire got a pop bottle chucked at his head, they definitely assumed it was him. Um, one strange thing is that that person who's screaming at the umpire before, we never get the name of him, by the way. He was holding an empty pop bottle. And then later the umpire was knocked out by, a, you know, a bottle. It doesn't say whether it was empty or full or not, but you'd think that it would be full, you know, if you got knocked out by it. Of course, if you think about the time frame this is in, it's not a plastic pop bottle. It's, I'm assuming that it's a glass pop bottle. So whether it was empty or full, it still could have done the damage. But, you know, that's just something I was thinking about. My only question is, who has both the aim and the throwing arm to chuck a bottle 
so accurately and so hard at the umpire's head that he gets knocked out. I suppose if you just tossed a glass pop bottle at some guy's head, which is, you know, far away, first of all, you'd probably miss. Second of all, it probably would just bump him and give him a bruise and not knock him out like a shot, you know? So <laughs> wouldn't it be kind of weird if the actual thrower was like a pitcher for the other team or something? <laughs> Actually, wait, that wouldn't make any sense because the pitcher for the other team is currently pitching. Okay, never mind. Sorry. <laughs> Okay, I don't know how baseball works. I know basically how baseball works, but I'm not familiar with the rules very well. But anyways, like, it would be funny if it was, like, some ex-pitcher in the crowd or something that could throw a really mean fastball, you know? <laughs> uh, but anyways. Also, just a note, this isn't related to any, you know, solution or problem solving. I just think it's kind of funny that Professor Fordney, who is, like, this genius criminologist, is just attending a regular American baseball game with Babe Ruth, no less. You know? And if you don't know, Babe Ruth is, like, a baseball legend in the United States. Like, he's in the Hall of Fame, like, 100%, you know? And so I just think it's kind of funny. It's like, oh, yeah, he's just casually attending a baseball game in America and in Philadelphia and just, you know, watching Babe Ruth hit a home run. Like, <laughs> that's pretty cool, you know? What years did Babe Ruth play? I'm actually kind of curious now. Oh, yeah, he played 22 seasons from 1914 to 1935. Okay. I can't really see much else wrong with this story. I mean, obviously, at the very end, he goes into the- like, Fordney goes into the office with the arrested guy who supposedly chucked the bottle, and he asks him about his scorecard and why he didn't record the last hit, um, which was the home run that Babe Ruth hit before the pandemonium broke loose, even though, you know, everything else is written down on his scorecard, so... And- and the boy's answer to that is that he was running at the time because he had an engagement, which... I don't know what that means, <laughs> because it is not 1919, it is 2022, so I don't know. <laughs> so that's why I didn't really mention it, because like, I don't know what that means, you know? I know he has an engagement, so he had something to do. I just don't know what, you know, some guy would be running around a baseball game for, you know? But anyways, yeah, I don't really have any solutions. My only solution is that the empty pop bottle, you know? But still, I mean, that's really not very good, because... Empty glass pop bottles can probably do just as much damage as full pop bottles, and they're probably easier to throw. So, <laughs> yeah. But yeah, that's all I got. I mean, this is a hard one, at least for me. Let's read the solution and see how well I did. There's a screen on the grandstand behind the home plate. Fortney had noticed a few seconds before, in the box next to him, the man whom the policeman had caught running down the ramp. As he could not have thrown a bottle through the screen, and in the time at his disposal could not have reached either side of the screen, Fordney knew he was innocent. He had noticed the man after two strikes and three balls had been called, and the pitcher delivered the next ball quickly. So yeah, that actually makes a lot of sense. See, like I said, I'm not familiar with baseball, but it makes complete common sense that there would be, you know, some kind of cage behind the batter so that the people in the grandstands don't get fastballs chucked at their child's head, you know? I get it. I understand it. I just didn't think about that. <laughs> I'm too used to murders, I'm not used to baseball games, okay? I'm not a sports person, I'm a book person. Do I look like I play sports? No. <laughs> oh yeah, but that was actually a lot of fun, I enjoyed that. I got <clears throat> zero out of three, right? But that's okay, because these were good stories. I especially enjoyed the baseball one, I don't know why. <laughs> Probably because it's the most American thing that I've ever read. <laughs> but yeah, anyways, that was a lot of fun and I hope you enjoyed as well. So I just have a couple things to say, first of all. If you have any recommendations or comments or feedback, I don't know, you can email it to me at classicmysteriespod at gmail.com. It is also listed in the show notes. 
If you've never listened to my regular podcast, which is called Classic Mysteries, obviously, feel free, you know? This is my Minute Mysteries mini-segment that I do every week on Thursday, but my regular episodes on Mondays are also very good. Basically, I just take an old mystery book, and I read it, and I comment on it, and it's a fun time. I'm making jokes as I read, and laughing about the weirdness of the story, or being interested in whatever's happening. Anyways, it's a fun time, and I enjoy it. You know, I just actually finished a book a couple of weeks ago called Bulldog Drummond. It's a very long series. It's like 13, 12 or 13 parts. Um, But it's a lot of fun. It's not strictly a mystery book, but it's like a hard-boiled action book, and I think that you'll enjoy it. And then after that, for the next couple of weeks, I did a Sherlock Holmes story called The Musgrave Ritual. I hope that you would enjoy that as well, because it's a really good story, and it's also just a two-parter, you know? It's, it's not a very long story. But yeah, anyways, I hope that you have a great day, because I had a great week, and I hope that you have a great week as well. So, stay safe, and I will see you next Thursday. Peace! Peace!